Good evening, brothers, or whatever time of day it is there in Zambia, in Lusaka. I'm sorry I cannot be with you in person. My few trips to Zambia have always been a great encouragement and blessing to me, but I have the privilege of preaching to an audience of one here in Johannesburg, not only in the ultimate, truest sense of the word, before the Lord, as every time that we preach and teach, but my dear brother and our staff member and administrator, Dom, Dominic, is there behind the camera, and so he will feel that he, it is this, if the Lord is speaking only to him, and in fact, that is literally the case. And uh, I trust that the other sermons that we sent, which were from a live audience and uh, in a more uh, normal setting in our congregation on the battle plan, the armor of God, Ephesians 6, would be a great encouragement to you men. But I do want to bring you a personal and particular message and greeting. You are dear to my heart on behalf of all of Sola 5 and Antioch Bible Church here and our elders and deacons and our congregation. We are thankful for you. We are inspired by you. I studied the story of the Reformed Baptist uh, Churches of Zambia for uh, graduate work almost 20 years ago and have, uh, in my 22 years in South Africa, have had the great joy of a, and an undeserving and very uh, uh, gracious, uh, a treasured friendship with Conrad, with Ronald, and with many of the brothers there. And the Lord used uh, Musunga Mwansa to help launch our outreach and campus Bible study at Monash some seven, eight years ago, still going strong, and uh, many other uh, men that the Lord has sent here and uh, the encouragement you are and the work that the Lord is doing, that his word is doing and performing his work there in Zambia. And I love your idea of a men's conference and we pray that this would be a fruitful time. And I believe you might be having a meal at this point and we're gonna be looking for a moment, just a, a kind of brief devotional, really no tight structure or normal expository outline, but just gonna turn to two places in the Psalms to talk about what is biblical meditation. While you're chewing on your food, let's chew on God's word. We cannot live by bread alone, right? But by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Psalm one, it's a text from which all the rest of the Psalms are a sermon. Watson said this, Thomas Watson the Puritan, the first Psalm may well be called the Christian's guide for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked sink down in perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. See, brothers, Psalm 1 is about what the whole Bible is about. It's about God and man. It's about two pathways and two opposing and opposite destinations. And there is no third option. There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. There's no Switzerland. Psalm 1 is about a division of the entire human race as old as Genesis 3, as old as the enmity that God promised he would place between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between Eve's offspring and Satan's. And Psalm 1 could not be more relevant than our day in which we live, brothers, with the COVID crisis globally, the lockdowns, the uh, attacks it has brought on freedom of religion, on uh, human rights, and the uh, panic and the pandemic that has turned the world upside down. People are desperate for answers. People are listening to voices. People are bombarded with opinions and authorities. How striking then is that opening verse of Psalm 1 as I read, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but 
verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, and here's our key word and theme that has been assigned to me, in God's law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Join me in prayer, brothers. Father, as we have this opportunity, though digitally and virtually limited, and yet your word is unbound, your word is unlimited, your spirit cannot be contained, and you are at work through your word and these brothers in Zambia and their men's conference as they will be gathering, and we pray that this moment to reflect on biblical meditation be fruitful, encouraging to all the men, all the marriages and households represented by each of these men, present marriages, future marriages, single men, uh, men who are in the, the workforce, men who are studying, men who are in ministry, we pray that they would meditate better, deeper, stronger, longer uh, upon your word that they might live better, that their homes and, and churches and workplaces and studies and their lives would be stronger and healthier as a result of the health-producing, life-giving truth of sound doctrine and the fruit of godly meditation upon your law, your truth. We pray with Jesus, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. So brothers, Psalm 1 is about two different pathways, right? It, 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 it's totally contrasting two different characters who are listening to contradictory counsel, walking with the opposite kinds of friends, headed towards opposite destinies. It's really about two different educations. We love what you're doing with ACU as well and African Christian University and have shared that burden from the earliest days with Ken Turnbull and now with Vodi and with Conrad and the board there and uh, have a, a share your burden for the desperate need for biblical worldview training and Christian tertiary higher education on this continent. And here we go. The Psalms begins where the Bible begins in Genesis where the destiny of nations begins, there's two educations here. There's one worldview that leads to blessing and one worldview that leads to cursing. And these are the differences that the world doesn't see. These are what God sees vertically. The way of the flourishing who are blessed in Psalm 1 or the way of the perishing, those who are cursed in Psalm 1. But the world doesn't see those ultimate categories. The world doesn't see from a vertical divine perspective. The world just says, well, you've got the rich or the poor. You've got the strong or the weak. You have the privileged or the underprivileged. You have the ruling or the oppressed. You have those who are fast and some are slow. Those who are educated, those who are uneducated. Some are funny, some are serious, some are extroverted, some are introverted. And then we see with all of these man-made and human and psychological categories. But from heaven's perspective, God says, ultimately, there are but two kinds of people. Those whose lives are busy being blessed, they're flourishing. And those whose lives are perishing because they're under the very curse of God, the wrath of the Almighty. The King of Heaven is not for them, He is against them. 
because they're not in Christ, as we know the rest of Scripture reveals and as the Gospel makes even more plain, because they have not come to the cross, they have not repented and believed, and so they are cursed under the, the hand of God against them. But the blessed have the hand of God for them. Psalm 1 could be entitled, The Parting of the Ways. But we want to narrow in on verse 2, on biblical meditation. Uh, I love the outline, I think I stole it from Steve Lawson, that the blessed way, the flourishing way in verses, four, verses one through three could be summarized this way. Verse one, they're separated from the world. They reject ungodly counsel, right? They're separated from the world. In verse three, they are supplied by the Lord. So these flourishing, blessed, tr- divinely happy, truly successful people are separated from the world, verse one, Verse three, they're supplied by the Lord, trees planted by streams of water. Then what's in the middle? Verse two, they're saturated with the word. That explains why they are separated from the world. That explains why they are supplied by the Lord. They, I want us to focus on verse two. They are saturated with the word. And then we'll end with an example from another psalm. How do we get saturated with the word? What does it mean there? Look at the text in Verse 2 specifically, in contrast to worldly counsel, destructive ideologies, false advice, dangerous ideas, uh, secular reasoning, and harmful advice that can be given. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. My brothers, you know that a man's thinking is shaped and you shape his whole life. You change his worldview, you change him. You educate him rightly and fully in a godly way, you've shaped the man for eternity. This is the sum of a successful man's life. How does he respond to God's book? This is Psalms, it's a book of worship and and song for the gathered congregation, the people of God. And by the way, I commend you that even though you have to pipe in a few flat-screened Preachers from afar, you are, I believe, mostly gathering in person. How are we ready to sing God's song unless you submit to his word? I love hearing the Zambians sing the great hymns, by the way. You'll sing the wrong songs to God and you'll sing them with the wrong motives, as someone has said about Psalm 1. Those who genuinely worship and praise God must embrace his law. You have to own its values, love its statutes, believe its commands, obey its precepts. See yourself as an heir and a steward of its story of redemption and hope, end quote. You see, before asking for some great worship experience and some great praise vibe like everyone looks for in the church today, first we should say, how is my Bible vibe? (laughs) How is my scripture experience? How is my relationship with the law of God? Verse two, I repeat, look at the text. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Torah, the instruction, the teaching, the written word of God, scripture, every precept, every promise, every statute, every command that the Lord has given. Remember, it's not the writers of scripture that were inspired. It was the writings, all scripture, the writings breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16, because men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, 2 Peter 1 tells us. 
His delight is in the law of the Lord. Instead of delighting in worldly counsel and ungodly companions, he has a purer pleasure, a better joy, a deeper delight. Sounds like Job 23.12. I've treasured the words from God's mouth more than my daily bread. Excuse me. Jeremiah testified, Jeremiah 15, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Peter, 1 Peter 2, God's word is the pure spiritual milk that we must crave like a newborn infant, begging, crying, pleading for his mother's milk. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, as we'll see in a moment. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. I lift up my hands to your word, which I love. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Look at the text again, verse 2. Could this be said of you, my brother, in Christ? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Plumer, the old commentator, says this. He's not a child of God who delights not in the holy scriptures. It's been said the Bible is like salt water. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. Think of my spiritual mentor and father, Pastor Ron, who went to be with the Lord from COVID just a few weeks ago. From age seven until he was into his 70s, for over 60 years, he, from childhood, he'd been counseled and challenged by his parents and his church to read the scriptures annually, at least once through the Bible. By the final uh, months before he died, he was devouring dozens and dozens of chapters of scripture, uh, often daily. Wearsby has said, meditation is to your soul what digestion is to your body. That's the Hebrew word here, brothers, in verse 2. On his, in God's law, he meditates. In other words, reflective thinking, active pondering, internal muttering, quietly reciting, intensely studying, regularly repeating. It's like the cow, remember? Chewing the cud over and over and over. It's like the lozenge to help with your sore throat. You don't swallow it straight. It could kill you. You crunch it, you munch it, you turn it over as a morsel. To understand its meaning, that's the idea here, to know God's law better so that you might obey it more. As McShane said, turn each verse into a prayer. Pray it back to God. My wife often says to me, honey, we got given that box of chocolates for Christmas to enjoy to make it last. Don't go through all of them in the next 24 hours. (laughs) Plumer again says, without meditation, grace never thrives. Prayer is languid, praise is dull, and religious duties are unprofitable. Augustine describes biblical meditation this way. Form thy spirit, in other words, set your heart by the affection of each psalm, each verse. The mood of the text, you could say. Augustine continues, if the psalm breathes the spirit of prayer, do you pray? If it's filled with groaning, groan also thyself. If it is gladsome, do thou rejoice also. If the text encourages hope, then you, hope thou in God. If the text calls to godly fear, then tremble thou before the divine majesty. Let the heart do what the words signify. It's a great description, isn't it? A biblical meditation. 
Look at the text further. He says, day and night. It frames your life. It fills your day. It's a consuming concern. It's a complete focus, like a lover who can't get his beloved off of his brain or out of his mind or away from his heart. Take the nighttime meditation away from my life, and I'm thrown off kilter. Take the daytime meditation on God's word, and my life also slides out of place like a row of books with only one bookend. It doesn't work that way. You need both bookends on either side, day and night. He's filled with God's law. Spurgeon says, for the Christian, in the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with the promises out of the same book. Brothers, is the Bible your best friend, your constant companion, your guide hour by hour? Moment by moment. Is God's word the default position of our souls? The gravitational pull of our hearts when all else is pulling us in the other direction. As Paul Washer famously said, maybe it's time for you to get off of Facebook and to get your face into the book. <laughs> Making time for God's word means saying no to a thousand other things. Calvin says, God is favorable to none but those who zealously devote themselves to the study of divine truth. Brothers, here's the root problem with our world, with our nations, with our communities, often with our marriages, with our homes. We are under God's curse whenever we have rejected his word, when we are suppressing his truth, Romans 1 says. Then he pours out his wrath and his angry opposition. The nations that have been most filled, however, with Bible reading and Bible living people have been the most blessed nations. And so it is for every city and suburb, every street, and every home, and every marriage, and every individual man's life, young or old, rich or poor. If only they are a Bible reading, Bible living person. Whatever else, their culture, their age, their health, their circumstances, they will be blessed, they will flourish, they will prosper. As verse 3 goes on to promise, right? He will, not he might, he should, he is. No, he will be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Real prosperity, the true spiritual health, wealth message. Bible style, as God defines it, not a materialistic, greedy consumer world. And by the way, brothers, verse 3, if he is this godly man separated from the world because he's saturated with the word and because he is supplied by the Lord, not a withering tree, not a dried up dead old bush like that contrast in Jeremiah chapter 17, right? If he is this green, fully alive uh, tree here in verse 3, uh, transplanted, you could say, by sovereign grace, uh, uh, echoes of the, the new birth and the new covenant in Christ and in the, the pouring out of the Spirit. If he is abundantly cared for, down by the river, fed by a reservoir that will never run dry, he's not starving, he's not malnourished. Notice the plural there in verse 3. There are streams, there are canals of water there at the beginning of verse 3. Uh, more water than this little tree will ever know what to do with. <laughs> Grace upon grace, God's abundance, heaven's own life-giving resources. Is this where you're living, my Christian brother? Is this 
true of your home, of your life, that you are enjoying God's infinite supply. You are thriving. You're not just surviving. You are an overcomer, not overcome. You are a victor, not living a defeated life because you are separated from the world, saturated with the word, and you are supplied by the Lord. Moses charged Joshua, right? This was a verse I clung to as a young Christian in my teenage years and in trying to be a witness for Christ in the, on the basketball court amongst, uh, in a, a public government school with uh, a secular, unsaved teammates. I often would memorize one of the, those, was one of the first verses I learned. Uh, Joshua 1, verse 8 and 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Uh, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then you, your way will be prosperous. Then you will be successful. Be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. How do you know God is with you? In a panicking world where uh, there's mass hysteria, how can we be known for a calm, godly courage if not the presence of God? And how do we know God's real, very uh, personal presence in our life if not through his word? Well, brothers, in observation, and one last thing in this passage is the tree here in verse 3 is not a pipe. <laughs> the water from the stream doesn't just shoot through the tree and straight out the branch like a hose pipe. Notice, the tree has to organically do something with the water, drink it in, internalize, digest, process it in order to produce something new and fresh living fruit, leaves of abundance. That's why medi biblical meditation, delighting in God's law is so critical and so pivotal. pivotal. One of my mentors used to say, young men, as you train for preaching and teaching God's word, it's less important that you go through the Bible than that the Bible first go through you. You may be in the book, but is, it, is the book in you? If we had access to God's word taken from us, how long would it be before we noticed? How long would we continue in our own strength and our own wisdom? How intense, brothers, is our craving? How desperate our dependence upon this living book, God's holy, active, penetrating word, sharper than any two-edged sword? Well, what better example do we have, brothers, of biblical meditation than the giant of the Psalms. Of which Psalm do I speak? I know you are well taught men, you know Psalm 119. So in closing, let's illustrate biblical meditation in action. A saint wielding the sword of the spirit to use the language of Ephesians 6, our only offensive weapon. The double-edged blade of Hebrews 4.12. Psalm 119 is 176 verses, 22 stanzas, following the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, illustrating an addict of Scripture, illustrating a obsessed soul. Interesting, we don't know if it was Daniel, maybe, maybe Ezra, maybe Jeremiah, probably not David. We don't know the author of Psalm 119, but it's clear as you meditate and analyze the text that it's a godly man in a pagan land, persecuted and oppressed, seeking to live pure in a impure and perverse society. 176 verses, all celebrating one grand theme, an applied bibliology, you could say, a meditation on the, and a savoring of the sweetness of Scripture. 
from before sunrise to beyond sunset. God's word dominates his life, he says. Uh, before dawn, daily, seven times a day, middle of the night, he is infatuated with the word of God and the God of the word, with the laws of the king and the king of the laws. I like what Kevin DeYoung says in his excellent little book. We give it out often here at our church from this pulpit. Taking God at his word, DeYoung writes, Psalm 119 is the explosion of praise that's made possible by an orthodox and evangelical doctrine of scripture. Your bibliology makes all the difference. When we embrace, he says, everything that the Bible says about itself, then and only then will we believe what we should believe about the word of God. Feel what we should feel and do what we should do with the word of God. De Young concludes, Psalm 119 is the spiritual reaction that the Spirit should produce in us when we fully grasp all that the Bible teaches about itself. William Wilberforce, that great Christian politician and liberator of slaves, memorized all 176 verses of Psalm 119, and he would recite it regularly. And our cameraman right behind the screen, Dom, his brother here in our church, did the same thing. And we were very, very proud of him. Psalm 119, let me just give you one verse in closing to illustrate the importance of biblical meditation. Just jump down to verse 15. And I will meditate on your precepts. Let's start with verse 14. And I will meditate, uh, verse 14, and I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. I love that old children's hymn that sadly churches have stopped singing, at least uh, the places that I've been. Holy Bible book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Mine to tell me whence I came, mine to teach me what I am, mine to chide me when I rove, mine to show a Savior's love, mine thou art to guide and guard, mine to punish or reward. Brother, is, is this your level of meditation and affection over God's word? Mine to comfort in distress, suffering in this wilderness. Mine to show by living faith man can triumph over death. Mine to tell of joys to come and the rebel sinner's doom. O thou holy book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Look once more at that text, Psalm 119, 115. Is this your manifesto? Is this your creed and declaration, brothers, your confession and your proclamation? This moment, I will meditate. No matter what, no matter where, no matter when, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Literally, I will fix my eyes. I will concentrate. I will gaze and pay attention to. Brothers, this is not mindless Eastern yoga meditation that empties the head. This is biblical meditation that fills the head with sound doctrine, with true theology, with biblical content. It's not an open mind. This is a closed and firm grip on the truth in the heart and the mind. Like the miser who looks on his bank accounts and possessions, pondering them over again and again, which was the previous verse, 14. So here in verse 15, to meditate on scriptures, to read and pray and ponder and personalize and memorize it over and over again. Like Mary, remember, she pondered these things in her heart when the angel Gabriel brought her a word from God in Luke 2. Perhaps you need to consider 
journaling, brothers, as a great practice for writing out prayers and response to biblical truth. The Puritans would speak and write often about two categories of biblical meditation. There's the occasional and there's the deliberate. In other words, there's the informal lifestyle of biblical meditation and then there's the deliberate devotional a morning, evening, Sunday, Lord's Day, Sabbath, if you like, habits of more formal meditation. I have in my library four volumes of the Puritan Thomas Manton, 176 sermons on Psalm 119. <laughs> a whole sermon on each verse. And he says this, Manton writes, Oh, Christians, meditation is everything. It is the mother and nurse of knowledge and godliness, the great instrument in all the offices of grace. We resemble the purity of God most in the holiness of our thoughts. Manton says, without biblical meditation, we're only chattering parrots without changed lives. May God help us. We live in a very busy, distracted, information age we have smartphones, but dumb hearts. We know more, but we understand less. We're more informed, but we're less wise. We have more data, but less depth. More facts, but less insight into what matters most in life. With all of our fast machines, we've lost the art, brothers, of slowing down when it matters most, of soaking in the word, of basking in biblical truth. We ought to love the longer sermons and the slow series through God's word that help us build meditation muscles as a congregation and in our own godly lives. Joel Beakey, I know, is a teacher and preacher and author uh, that is loved by you in Zambia and us here in South Africa. Go and look up his seven-step method for biblical meditation, summarizing uh, the Puritans and their example for us in this area. I close with this, brothers, as I pray for you and ask you to pray for me and for uh, our church here at Antioch and for, our, for believers here in South Africa as we pray for you that we would grow in this discipline and this habit of biblical meditation. Isaac Watts writes, Lord, I have made thy word my choice, my lasting heritage. There shall my noblest powers rejoice, my warmest thoughts engage. I'll read the histories of thy love and keep thy laws in sight while through the promises I rove with ever fresh delight. The best relief that mourners have, it makes our sorrows blessed, our fairest hope beyond the grave and our eternal rest. Amen and God bless you.